So this evening for our sermon text, we're taking Psalm 11. Psalm 11, we're going to look at the whole psalm. Before we read that psalm, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now study the scriptures, we ask that we would be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and humble hearts that are understanding and obedient. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 11. It's entitled to the choir master of David. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulphur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. To the choir master of David. First line, in the Lord I take refuge. Everything else that David has to say in this psalm should be considered in the light of that first line. In the Lord I take refuge. In all that he does, as a servant of God, we have to understand that the Lord is his refuge. In all of the troubles that come his way as a servant of God, we have to understand that the Lord is his refuge. He's basically modelling something for us. What is our refuge? What is our hope? Where is our life found? The very substance of our life. If we are building, what is it that we are hoping to build? If we are storing, if we are laying something away, what is it that we are hoping to store? Where is it that we are laying it away? If we're planning for the future, what is it that we're planning for? What is really, truly our greatest hope? Can we honestly say, in the Lord I take refuge? I think of the words of a missionary that once I read. The man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. David Elliott. The man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. He died young. There was a misunderstanding. They were seeking to introduce themselves to a tribe in the South American jungles that had never had the gospel preached to it before. And members of that tribe misinterpreted apparently their intentions and killed them, literally shot them with arrows. He and a few friends, they died. That guy... He was more studied than I am. I have no doubt that he was more capable than I am. 
He was further along the way in his walk with the Lord than I am. And his governing principle was that in the Lord he takes refuge. And so in the service of the Lord, he dies. Given up on all things. You know, we often say of missionaries when they, when they go, think of what they're giving up on. Think of what they're giving up on. I was a, I was a very um, new Christian. Probably I'd only walked with the Lord around about a year or so when a, when a certain young lady went to the mission field in sort of the circles of the church that we were attending. She didn't go directly from our church, but from a church where we had associations and connections. And she was a brilliant young lady. Well studied, highly qualified, capable, likeable, attractive, etc., etc., etc. And her mother was saying, oh, the opportunities she's giving up. The opportunities she's giving up. Now, what was her mother talking about? Well, she was talking about the opportunity for worldly advancement, a brilliant career, great gain, admiration, etc., etc. And um, I really did greatly appreciate that an older lady in those same church circles, much older lady who had come back from the mission field herself, said to the young lady's mother, she said to her, Consider what she's gaining. Who cares what she's given up? That young lady went out with the attitude that in the Lord she takes refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. Is is David being foolish? Is he saying being a fool? I'm sorry, is he saying let's be fools? Is he saying let's cast ourselves from the temple? and see whether or not angels catch us so that we don't strike ourselves against the ground. That's not what he's saying. Is he saying that we don't live our lives with any wisdom whatsoever? You know, should I turn up at work tomorrow morning and say the Lord is my refuge, therefore I will not do the safety check on the vehicle I'm to drive? I'll trust in the Lord. I'll trust in the Lord that the tyres are inflated. I'll trust in the Lord that there's tread on them. I'll trust in the Lord that the airlines are connected so that the brakes will work. I'll trust in the Lord. The Lord is my refuge. Is that what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. He's not saying be a fool. He's saying be obedient to God. Be wise in the things that you have been given responsibility with. But remember that in the end, your only hope is the Lord. In the end, your hope of safety, your hope of protection, your hope of eternal life, all of these things are reliant entirely upon the Lord. And though I would take every possible action that I can to ensure that I do my job safely and don't get killed in the process of doing it, even so, I have no idea what the length of my days are and I have no idea when I'll be taken from this world and I have no idea how I'm to be taken from this world. In the light of the fact that I'm mortal, in the light of the fact that I don't know how much longer I've got to go, ultimately then, what must be my only hope? 
The Lord is my refuge. In the Lord, in Yahweh, in my God, I take refuge. David goes on. How can you say to my soul? Now, apparently, now we we can't really set this psalm in a particular time or moment in the life of David. We can think of moments or times when it may have fitted, but we don't know for sure. But apparently, apparently advisors have said to David, there's trouble brewing. You'd better get yourself out of town. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Now, David is a man with a public office ordained by God. From the moment Samuel poured the oil upon his head, David was a man set apart by God. Yet this advisor is saying flee, surrender, get out of dodge. Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. Plotters, schemers. The wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow in the string to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Think about that. To shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. What are they saying? Now, you have to put yourself back in ancient times, but it, you, could, you could put yourself here into sort of some more isolated rural area around about here. An arrow in the dark. That's more or less random. That's a chance. They're shooting in the dark at the righteous. They're shooting in the dark at the upright in heart. You see... You know, the legendary bowman of the world, William Tell, shot the apple off his son's head. He didn't do it in the dark. Robin Hood. There's, there's nothing, if you read any of the stories of Robin Hood, there's nothing that says that in the dark he could hit a target. They're shooting in the dark at the upright in heart. You know what? If there are arrows flying in the dark, they're being shot at anyone and everyone and nothing in particular. I'm reminded of the proverb. The man who said, I can't go out of the house, there's a lion in the streets. Well, I'm sure there's something in the streets that is dangerous to anyone. The arrow flies in the dark. It's random. An arrow being shot in the dark is not being shot with any accuracy. If a person does such a thing and shoots an arrow in the dark towards where they know people might be, it's just malicious intent. It's simply the hope to hurt anyone. But look at what the advisor says at the end of verse 3, or I mean in verse 3. They're shooting in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, think about this. This is subtle flattery. Yeah, it's subtle flattery. What do I mean? David, you're so important that if something happens to you, 
it all comes to an end. You're so important that you must be protected. If the foundations are destroyed, David, if we lose you, where would we be? You see what's being said there? God's purposes cannot be accomplished other than by you fleeing and seeking safety. Run and hide. You're a servant of God. Run and hide. God has a plan for you. Run and hide. You've got to survive one way or the other in order that God's plan may be fulfilled. Flattery. Do you think this church would fall if one person falls? Do you think the kingdom of God would fail if one Christian falls? Do you think no one can be replaced? First job I ever had after I left high school, I remember my boss, he said to me, you know, we were joking around and I, mean, I, I, I made a bit of a joke about how important I was to the operation and he just laughed and said to me, just remember, you're a spoke in a wheel and every spoke is replaceable. And my friends, here we are in the kingdom of God and I'm telling you, we're all spokes in a wheel and every spoke is replaceable. And God in his providence is building his church and no single person is irreplaceable and no single person, the death or the life of no single person will stop the progress of the building of the church. None whatsoever. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So let's just sum up what has been said to David. You should flee. Bad people are doing bad stuff and who knows, but they might get to you because you're so important that we can't let anything bad happen to you. I would suggest to you that these are the words of the unwise and faithless. They might say they're believers and they claim to be servants of God and servants of King David but these are the words of the unwise and the faithless. They're saying something could go wrong, therefore panic. Press the panic button. Now we're going to hear the answer of faith. Now we're going to hear David's reply. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Okay, what's he saying? To these counsellors who come to him with rumours of war, rumours of troubles. He's saying to them, you might be right. You may well be right. It is possible that troubles are coming. It is possible that malicious people are going to be firing off arrows in the dark. It's quite possible. But here's what you need to understand. My God is enthroned in heaven. From there he rules. From there he rules. He will accomplish all his purposes, both for me and apart from me. You are saying I am so important that I can't take a risk. I am saying that God is so important 
that I must be prepared to take a risk in obedience to the will of God. The Lord is in heaven. The Lord is in his holy temple. He is enthroned. He's saying, I worship God. Now, what does a king do from his throne? What does a king do from his throne? He holds what is called his royal court. He rules. He judges. He ordains. He sends forth. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, what was one of the things that happened? Isaiah got sent out as a preacher. The Lord said, who will I send? And Isaiah said, pick me, send me, I'll go. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. David is saying the important thing here is that God rules and reigns. And I am under the instruction of God. And God is always rules and God always reigns. And if if wicked, malicious people are firing arrows in the dark, even so, God still rules and reigns. And God has given me, King David, a role to fulfil. He hasn't said to me, David, obey my commands and shepherd my people Israel until the going gets tough. Then when you're feeling scared, you're allowed to run and hide. That is not what God said to David. That is not the way it works when you're a shepherd or when you're a shepherd king, as David was. You know, remember remember David's little spiel to King Saul? Saul said, how are you going to fight? And David said, hey, I'm a shepherd. I'm a shepherd. When bears come, I fight bears. When lions come, I fight lions. This uncircumcised Philistine is like a bear or a lion. I'm a shepherd, therefore I fight. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Furthermore, his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. He's in heaven He's given me a commission. He's told me to do something. He hasn't given me a back down clause. You know, we read Peter said to Jesus, Jesus said, Peter, you're right. I'm the son of the living God. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to be unfairly treated. In the end, they're going to kill me. And Peter said, no, 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 don't do such. No such thing is allowed to happen. Don't do it. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. The Lord's eyes see. You see, the Lord had given Jesus a mission. Obedience to the point of death. Obedience all the way through the loss of life upon a cross. Obedience all the way through to the resurrection. (coughs) David's saying, His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. I've been given a commission. I've been given a command. God is watching. 
I'm aware of the presence of God in all that I do. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. So how has David interpreted this advice? Hit the panic button. Flee. Bad people are out there taking random shots in the darkness, one of which might kill you, and then what would happen? How does David interpret the news? The Lord tests the righteous. I belong to the Lord. He's given me a commission. The Lord even now watches me. He watches me. He expects me to obey. The Lord tests the righteous. I'm under testing. I will obey. My friends, it's the response of faith. I am under testing and I will obey. The Lord tests the righteous, but concerning the malicious ones and possibly even concerning you who have come to me with the bad news that I should panic and that I'm so important that I can't take a risk. Here's what David says. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So concerning those who are shooting arrows in the darkness, which may or may not find their, find their target, but are intended for harm, they're the enemies of God. They're the enemies of God. God's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, if God has put David on the throne as the shepherd king and God's enemies are out there in the darkness firing random arrows, what is David saying concerning those people? If they're God's enemies, they're my enemies. They're my enemies. God hates them. God hates the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulphur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, I don't know exactly what David is getting at here as he speaks of letting, let him rain coals upon the wicked. Fire and sulphur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. But I'm kind of imagining the effect of a whirlwind blasting through a campfire. You know, if you, if you were going to sleep... Out in the open at night, back in the day, you'd build a nice large campfire. I'm kind of imagining the effect of a whirlwind coming through the camp, right through the middle of that fire, stirring up the fire and the coals flying out from the fire. You know, you've probably seen some footage taken within bushfires. Similar sort of idea. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulphur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Concerning these people, says David, God will deal with them. I trust them into the hand of God. God will deal with them as he see fits. They have made God their enemy. God will deal with them. God has a portion for them, a cup. What does that mean? A cup. What did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if it, Father, if it be possible, take this cup 
from me. This cup, it was God's will that Jesus suffer for the sins of all who were to be redeemed. Jesus was to drink the cup, the cup that was filled to the brimming with the wrath of God, the judgment of God upon wickedness. Jesus was to drink our cup on our behalf. And as we did this morning, we get a different cup. We get a cup of blessing. Jesus drunk the cup of our judgment and he gives to us a cup of grace. And you can, you can, you know, you can imagine a little there. And, you know, we're, we're allowed to think a little about this. This is my blood shed for the covenant, shed for sins. We get to drink that cup, the cup of blessing. But these wicked ones who love violence, there's a portion that gets poured into their cup. Fire, sulphur and a scorching wind, coals raining down upon their head. They get to drink that cup. We often say you've made your bed, you get to sleep in it. Well, it's a kind of similar idea here. They're making their bed, they're going to get to sleep in it. They're filling their cup, they're going to have to drink it. They like to fire off arrows in the night. Don't worry. It's going to rain coals, fire, sulphur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The upright, those who are made to stand. Those who are made to stand. I tell you this, no one stands in the presence of the Lord apart from those who are made to stand. In Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul speaks of judging another man's servant because, and he says, do not do so. Do not judge another man's servant because before his own master he stands or falls and indeed he will be made to stand. The upright, those who are upright, those who are upheld, those who are made to stand, those who are counted righteous by God, who himself is righteous, they shall behold the face of the Lord. What's the promise in the book of Revelation? Saying you won't need the sun, you won't need the moon, you won't need stars. Why? Because you'll have the face of the Lamb. <coughs> the face of our God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Turn to Numbers, the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 6. At verse 22, we read, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Back at Psalm 11, verse 7. The Lord, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The blessing that Aaron was to pronounce upon the people was the hope that they would see the face of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And what's the fulfillment of that blessing? What's the fulfillment of that hope? It's to look upon the face of our Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. So bright will be his face that we will not need the sun nor the moon. We will not need any other light. He'll feel our vision as it were. The Lord loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's consider a little bit more this idea of the Lord raining coals on the wicked. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Let's start reading in Romans chapter 12 from verse 9. Can someone refill my glass? Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the Apostle Paul here is actually directly quoting from one of the Proverbs, Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. But let's look at this. I mean, what does it say concerning the wicked? Let him, let the Lord rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulphur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That exhortation we've read in Romans 12 that ends with the quotation of the proverb, what's Paul saying? In the face of evil doing, be patient. In the face of pointless, crazy, wicked attacks, be patient. In times of tribulation, be constant in prayer. Do that which you have been given to do. 
Obey in all circumstances. What well, you know, one of the great fallacies of our Christian life, one of the ways in which we so often go wrong, and it's especially, I think, a temptation for young men. And as a young man, I made this mistake. It's this, or a younger man anyway, it's this. Someone has done wrong by me, therefore I may repay evil by evil. It's the thought that someone has crossed the line and sinned against me, therefore restraint is removed and I am justified in sinning against them, sinning against them in retribution. I can do it now. He did this, therefore I can do that. That's a young man's way of thinking and I'll confess it's a fool's way of thinking and I've thought it and I've done it and it's wrong. That is not what the Lord expects of his people. That is not what the Lord expects of you and I. Remember the words of David, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man, the Lord tests the righteous. The God whom we worship is enthroned. That is unchanging. Everything that comes our way comes our way because he is ruling in heaven. And when people sin against us, it is a test of our faith. And if all that I've said is correct, no matter whose hand the test comes by, could be an evil person with malicious intent. It could be a misguided Christian person in an error or folly making a stupid mistake. If testing comes our way, where has it come from? Who sent the test? The Lord tests the righteous. It come from the Lord. But he sinned against me. Yes, the Lord tests the righteous. Did the Lord tell him to sin? No, he did not. God is not morally responsible for the moral actions of others or the immoral actions of others. But God ordained, or if you want to use the word permitted, God permitted this test to come our way, my way, your way, whatever it might be. The Lord tests the righteous. What therefore then does he expect to see under any circumstance, under any condition, whether we're slandered, whether we're falsely accused, whether we're attacked as fools, whether we're hated, whether we're detested, what is our response to be? Godly, faithful obedience. Romans chapter 12, verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now go back to Psalm 11. What's David saying? I'm the king of Israel. I've been set in a certain position by God himself. God has an expectation that I will act in obedience to his will. God's command is not that I run to save my own skin. God's command is not 
that I act sinfully. The Lord is my refuge and this test comes from the Lord. I will do what is right. I will do as the Lord expects of me. And I expect that the Lord will rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulphur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. I will obey. Now, King David was a man with a nature like unto us to claim to uh, quote James, who's speaking of Elijah in that instance. We know that he was a sinner. We know that he that he stumbled. We know that he did badly on, on occasion. My friends, that's our lives. That's what we're going to do. Not one of us is perfected. We're going to stumble. We're going to sin. But the Lord will pick us up. The Lord will call his own back to himself. The Lord will restore his own. He may discipline us. But the purpose of God's discipline is always to restore a beloved child to fellowship. He is our father. A true father does not discipline to death. A true father does not discipline to the point of separation. A true father, when he disciplines, always has the intention of restoration. Restoration to righteousness, restoration to relationship, restoration to the way in which we should walk. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. What is the result of a Christian in times of testing? Or what is, I'm sorry, the desired result of Christian testing? Purified Christian behaviour, Christian obedience in all circumstances. If the Lord is our fear, if we fear the Lord more than we fear anything else, if the Lord is our refuge, what should our response be to the threaten to I'm sorry, to the threat of random death in darkness? Random choices. Not random choices, random happenings is another way to put it. Now, I'm saying nothing is random. Everything comes from the hand of God. But to you and I, we can't predict things. We can't predict everything. Many things happen that, as far as we're concerned, they're random. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot it in the dark at the upright in heart. It's to not fear. It's to not fear. There's only one fear that we should have. There's only one fear that we should know. It's the fear of God himself. Fear him. Turn again to Romans, I mean to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. Verse 26, Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. So have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Who are they? Well, they're the servants of the evil one, be they human or spiritual. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who casts into hell? Who has the power to choose which one goes to hell and which one does not? Who is the judge? God. Fear God. 
Who ought we as the people of God be fearing? God. What fear ought to dominate our lives? The fear of sinning against our Lord God. The fear of being disobedient to our Lord God. The fear of bringing dishonour to the name of our Lord God. This should be our fear. In order that the Lord will be our refuge. What's our only hope? The Lord himself. Ultimately, our only hope is the Lord himself. We work hard, we do the best we can, we hope to have a good life, we want our children to have good lives. I've now got a grandchild, I want him to have a good life. But the Lord is our refuge. If anyone gets these things, if any of you here gets these things, a long, fruitful, blessed life, you get it because it was given to you by God. If the Lord takes any of us at any particular time, he does so for his purposes according to his glory, whether we remember this or know this or understand this or not. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. This is the response of faith. This is how faithful people respond to um, information to words that come to us apart from God, outside of the will of God. We say, oh, that's very interesting. You know what I know? I know that the Lord is in his holy temple. I know that the Lord is enthroned in heaven. I know that my Saviour, the Lord Jesus, sits at the right hand of God on high. I know that he rules over all things for his glory and my good. This is our refuge This is our source of courage. You say, I don't feel courageous. Look hard at the Lord. Look carefully to God. Look at who God is, where God is, what God has promised, where our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. The one whom God so loved that he gave his only begotten son, that only begotten son, who shed his blood upon the cross of Calvary. He reigns on high. All the powers of heaven are under his right hand. All the powers of heaven, all the powers of God, all the power of divinity, It's under the rule and the reign of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood for us. We're called his sheep, we're called his lambs. It's true in a way, we are the weakest of all. But you've got to understand, our shepherd is the strongest of all. And whatever test he brings into our lives, he also brings with it the strength to survive the test to surpass the test, to have victory when being tested. And if he is our fear, what else is there to fear? What else is there to fear? As briefly as I can, I just want to make some closing comments. This is the religion of the worshippers of the living God. But at the moment, our nation is ruled by a different religion. It's called secular humanism. It has priests and it has prophets. 
The priests of secular humanism are any who masquerade as scientists, whether they truly be scientists or not. If it's supposedly scientific, if it's supposedly the basis of scientific research, it is accepted as fact. Medieval Roman Catholic preacher, priests in the, time of, in the time before the Reformation could only wish they exerted the mental control that the priests of secular human, humanism exert in this day and age. They could only wish that they had a captive audience the way secular humanism has a captive audience today. The priests are the scientists who publish supposed information telling us that there is no God, that all things are scientific, that there's absolutely nothing supernatural, etc., etc., etc. All right, who are their prophets? Well, the prophets are the people who take the word of God and apply it to the followers. Secular humanist prophets are those who take the word of the scientists and use it to scare the life out of those who believe the words of the scientists. I'm talking about the mass media. The news. The news. The reporters. The mass media. The TV networks. The cable news networks. The news. And right now, right now, what are they saying to you? Well, think of what was said to David. The wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow in the, to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. To shoot in the dark. Remember? To shoot in the dark. Shooting an arrow in the dark. It's not an accurate thing. It's not a targeted thing. You're just sending, you're sending a weapon off in a general direction, wondering if it's going to hit somebody. You're talking about chance. Chance! The arrow may or may not find a victim. It's just chance. And what's everybody scared of today? And I know I shouldn't say everybody. There are exceptions. And I know that there is a number of people who are tired of this, had enough of this. They look at the numbers. They see a mortality rate of 0.05%. And they say, well, if that's what arrows fired in the dark does, I think I'll just keep living in the light and not worry about it. What are we being told constantly? Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. A disease. Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. Don't go to church. Be afraid. Don't sing hymns because if you're singing a hymn, more air is passing in and out of your lungs and you might send off an arrow in the dark that might hit somebody. Be afraid. Be afraid. Be fearful. Sit at home. Don't worship God. And then, of course, there are those who would claim to be the servants of God, those counsellors who are speaking to David. I'm sure they claimed to be David's allies and servants of God, saying, they're right, you know, we've got to love our neighbour. We can't take the chance that arrows are going to fly out in the dark and maybe hit some random person. We've got to love our neighbour. Let's not go to church. Let's not gather as the people of God. Let's not make public declaration. 
of the fact that we worship the one true living God. After all, an arrow might fly off in the darkness. What's the response that we read in Psalm 11? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You see, this is unchanging. This is God. This is God not changing. God to be worshipped. God who is to be worshipped by his people. Unchanging, unchanged, constant, always. If that's the way our God is, what's the way we are supposed to be? If we're supposed to be Christ-like, and Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, having conquered his enemies, in the peace and the joy and the fellowship of the Holy Trinity, unchanging, Jesus the same yesterday, today and forever, we read in the book of Hebrews, and we're supposed to be living in imitation of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, how are we supposed to live? Are we supposed to be running around afraid of arrows that may randomly strike us in the night? Or are we given a commission? Are you a commissioned person? You're a Christian. If you are in the Lord, you are a Christian. You have been given things to do. You're a worshipper of the living God through Jesus Christ our Lord by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now I say this to you people here, and I know you're here with me, so I don't want you to think that I'm necessarily directing rebuke directly at you. Okay, but the word goes out. As you know, the word goes out via the internet. And so I say to Christians, are you living in the fear of the world or are you living in the fear of God? Is your great fear that you would, that you would dishonour the name of God? Is your great fear that you would grieve God's Holy Spirit? Is your great fear that when the time of testing comes, it turns out that the faith that you claim to hold is not true? Do you fear these things? Or do you fear arrows that fly in the darkness and may or may not hit you? The Lord tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous. We live in testing times. And the prophets of secular humanism tell us fear. You should fear. You should be afraid. Fear should govern your every action. We had a public servant on national media just a few days ago telling people that they ought not speak to their friends. Fear. They ought not speak to their friends. Why? Fear. That random arrow flying in the darkness. It might find you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Fear. How are Christians loving their neighbour if they're not living the gospel? How are Christians loving their neighbour if they're not living the gospel? If when a person looks at you or I and they can see no difference between you or I and everybody else in the world, how are we loving our neighbour? 
I'd like someone to explain that to me at some point in time. You see, if what the prophets of doom are saying is true, well, the disease is going to get all of us and kill us. And, you know, evolution is going to be fulfilled because the fools die first and they can go on happily because they feared and they were wise. But I don't think that's going to happen. It doesn't seem to matter how hard they try. They can't get the mortality rate of this disease above 0.05% of the people who actually catch it. They just can't do it. We're the servants of the living God. We worship God. We obey the commandments of God. We're called to worship the living God. We're called to gather together. We're called not to forsake the gathering together of the saints. We're called upon to worship, to speak out, to speak aloud the name of our Lord, to give him the glory, to ascribe unto him greatness. We're called to fellowship, to love one another. We're commanded to let the fear of the Lord be the fear which governs our life. And we're told that the Lord should be our refuge. What's what's King David saying to us? What's King David saying to the church? What's the son of King David enthroned at the right hand of God got to say to his people? I am in my holy temple. I am enthroned in heaven. My eyes see. My eyes test the children of man. I test the righteous. You live in a time of testing. I expect obedience. Wouldn't that be what he's saying in the light of Psalm 11? Let our fear be the fear of God, not the fear of man. Let our fear be the fear of God, not the fear of arrows that fly in the darkness. Let our fear be the fear of God not some disease that may or may not come our way. And my friends, even if it does, and you die younger than you think you were going to, die with the praises of the Lord upon your lips because you're on your way to eternity. You're on your way to the presence of Jesus, which is better by far. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may the fear of God be that which dominates our life. And may you be our only refuge, the only one to whom we look for salvation, for hope. Lord, forgive us our weakness, we pray. Forgive us that when we hear these wicked counsellors bringing stories to us. Our hearts can skip a beat. We look at the ground, we look away. Help us, Father, to always remember. You reign on high. Your throne is in heaven. You see all things. You test the righteous. And in this day of our testing, strengthen us, enable us, encourage us, comfort us, that we may serve you 
in the way that you have called us to serve. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.